You are listening to the Peter Day Music Podcast. Hosted by obsessed songwriter, recordist, and instrumentalist Peter Day. Featuring recordings from the 1960s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and today. Was Music is Everybody's Business, sung by David Sandborg, and it's featured on a new documentary by Scott Kirby called Music Matters. I've known Scott for a long, long time. He's a multi-talented singer-songwriter, and he was a, a music journalist for a while, and then he did some promotion. He's really worn many hats, and he is passionate about the music business, and he'd like to change it for the better. Um, so Scott came up to my music studio slash getaway pad, and uh, we were going to do some songs, some music, which we did do. But also, I uh, had a chance to interview him for my podcast. And it's a very interesting interview where he talks about his passion, about his concerns, and about his documentary, which has come out just recently. Uh, he's hitting the circuit. He's been on radio recently talking about it. And he's going to be taking the documentary to different film festivals. And it's, it's really exciting for Scott, especially considering that he's now getting his ideas out there in a, in a very professional documentary. So... Enjoy the interview with Scott Kirby. So welcome, Scott. Thanks for coming into the studio here. I'm honored to be here, Peter, and uh, it's, your new place is just great. I love the high desert ambiance of the, of the pad. It's yeah. very cool. Yeah, well, thanks. Well, congratulations on finishing this, this documentary. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about, give a little background on this documentary? Well, this documentary came out of the fact that I had been trying to start companies to to put a pipeline in between uh, the record industry and the radio industry going back for 15 or 20 years. And I started two. Uh, one was uh, Fair Air Communications with two gentlemen named John Brody and uh, Jeff Wyatt, who were big music industry people. And I brought along my friends Cheryl Bros and Rich Pistori. Uh, Cheryl worked for uh, Capitol Records and Arista 
and she worked for KRBE in Houston, Texas. She was a great music industry person and a good friend of mine. And Rich worked with, with me at Hitmakers Magazine. So anyway, but, so what eventually happened was is that I set up a pipeline between the record and the radio industries because I knew, you know, based on Amazon.com and Google and Netflix and eBay, that all these companies were basically sending out product and acquiring feedback on what the consumers thought. And they were saying, we'll get this information and we'll hook up makers of guitars or CDs or bowling balls or whatever it is based on the prefer- preferences of what people want. Amazon.com is really good about mm-hmm. this. They, they really want to know what you like. Netflix does this better than anybody. They want to know what you like so they can forecast what you're going to like in future products. So I said, well, the music industry doesn't have this pipeline, so I'm going to set it up. So I set up these two companies and both the companies failed. And I said, how could this be? Everything that the music industry makes, which is music, they send out the music, they acquire information, and then they send the information back and forth. That's all uh, transferable on the internet. So why didn't this succeed? And I realized, Peter, it was because the record and the radio industry had no business relationship. And I didn't know why at the time, but I thought both these industries should have been thumbs up gung-ho about this. We're modernizing two industries that need to communicate together and send music and information back and forth. This, These two industries, these two businesses I started, should have succeeded and they failed. So so that led you to do this project? Well, first of all, Peter, I did some research mm-hmm. and I, I asked myself why they failed and I realized that this very obscure 1960 law called the Payola Law completely put the kibosh on their business relationship so they couldn't do business together. So I studied the law, why it was, and realized that the people that put the law into effect really had no vision in 1960, when the law came out about how this was going to impact the music industry, their whole motive for putting the law on the books was to try, believe it or not, to get rid of Elvis Presley's music. How come they wanted to get rid of it? Well, Elvis Presley, up until the, the late 50s, white music, basically pop artists were Pat Boone and Perry Como, artists like this, mm-hmm. very white, didn't move around, weren't sexual, real bland cheesecake. Okay, bubbity bop, along comes Elvis Aaron Presley from Memphis, Tennessee. And he's a guy that moves around, swings his hips, you know, thrusts his pelvis around. Elvis the pelvis, right? Elvis the pelvis. Elvis the pelvis. And this freaked out a lot of people. So freaked out to the point where one of these people, Emanuel Seller, who was the attorney general of New York, decided this guy's got to go. So I know that the reason that radio is playing this guy because he's in bad taste is because of pay for play. So I'm going to make it forbidden, verboten is the Deutscher, the Germans would say, for the record and radio industry to do business together. So he put this law in the books thinking that if the two industries couldn't do business together, it would stop Elvis Presley. And we all know mm-hmm. it failed about as bad as anything could ever fail. How does that, the payola law, uh, how, how, well, it still continues to this day, I guess. Well, it's a very, very difficult law to enforce. Basically, more than difficult, impossible. Um, uh, Casey Ray, a friend of mine from the Future Music Coalition in Washington, determined in a survey that 90% of the music played on major market radio stations in this country come from Warner Brothers, Sony, and Universal, the three major labels. What do they have in common? They have all the money. So the payola law was originally meant to level the playing field so that labels that didn't have a lot of money would, in theory, have the same shot if if Rich labels couldn't buy their way onto radio station playlists. They would, in theory, have the same chance to get their music on the radio, and it didn't work. 
In fact, in our documentary Music Matters, there's a DJ named Jim Terry who draws the parallel between supermarket aisles. He says that in the, in the supermarkets, you have Coca-Cola and General Mills and the big soda and, and cereal manufacturers. They're all eye level, like four or five feet off the ground. If you're an off-brand, they put your products on the floor. So you have to get down on your knees to see them. Well, most people don't want to do that. So if it, it's much easier to pick up a Coca-Cola bottle that's five feet, six feet, you know, eye level than it is to get down your hands and knees to get Ma Jones's soda on the ground. So that's payola. Clearly, the Coca-Cola and GM guys give the grocery store guys money or or end cap display money or whatever. Some send their wives and them to the Bahamas, whatever it is. Paola goes on everywhere, including our government, in the form of lobbyists. That's Paola. So you can't stop Paola. It's everywhere, mm-hmm. including the music industry, which it, it'll always be there. In your documentary, you talk about the free market system. So that's kind of what you're talking about here. Well, okay. The free market, yes, that's that's collusion. But another way the free market relates is the fact that um, uh, if the radio industry took bad music, if they took bad music when they got paid, mm-hmm. what would happen is the supply, free market supply and demand economics. So if the music went out and the supply of music that the radio audience heard was negative, was bad, okay, the listener demand would go down and their revenue would go down, which is why the payola law hasn't been enforced for probably 95, 98% of the time since it started. And the radio stations say the same because the radio programmers cannot play bad music for money or they lose their audience. If they lose their audience, they lose money. So they only play good music when they got money. This is why the payola law wasn't even necessary. So why did the payola law hurt the you know, the relationship between radio and uh, record companies. Okay. What you need to imagine, Peter, is that in 1960, the two industries were nascent, fledgling industries. When Elvis came out and the Paola Law went in, all right, the two industries, the record industry and the broadcasting industry, were really just trying to figure out what the heck the dynamic was between them. But how they would have grown, clearly, is it would have been like two industries under the same umbrella. They really would have been partner industries, partners in music, really. So, so it, it affects their roles and goals, okay? The goal of the record industry is what, Peter, in your opinion? The goal of the record industry? Sell records? To sell records. Bingo. So they want to sell records. So the role of the radio industry would have been, okay, we've got in the 1960s early, probably at least hundreds and hundreds of thousands of listeners. And then quickly in the 70s, late 60s, when the Beatles came in, of course, that was huge. Then you had Motown, all this great music out there, and it just made radio listening audiences swell. So they start having millions of listeners. So their job would be Hey, record industry, the radio industry would have said to the record industry, we're going to take your music and find the widest possible audience for this. We're going to establish relationships with these audience. And then we're going to take this information back and we're going to say, hey, record industry, we're the radio industry. We just helped you sell a ton of music, but it took work. So we need to be compensated. So you want that information on all your listening audience. You give us for every million dollars you sell in music, you give us uh, 50,000, 100,000, and you guys take 900,000, and that'll be our relationship. We'll take your music, we'll get it out, we'll find the widest possible audience for it, we'll collect information on the people that want to hear that music, and we'll have a relationship based on we'll get the information and you give us money for that relationship. Okay, how did the payola hurt the record industry? It made it impossible for the record industry to pay, pay the radio industry for anything, not just pay for play, but pay for anything. 
So it stopped that synergy and that just destroyed the dynamic and, and brought us to this disastrous mess we're in today in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, Netflix is unbelievably successful. Their stock price keeps going up and you're, you're scratching your head going, well, wait a minute. Netflix is doing kind of the same thing that should be going on in the music industry. Netflix are in between filmmakers and people that want to watch movies, right? Mm -hmm. And their, their job description is, okay, we're going to tie the two together. And based on how well we do, we're going to make money. Okay, the reason why Netflix is successful and the music industry isn't is because of two primary reasons. Number one, people like the Netflix cost, right? Films are much harder to find than the music on the internet. There's far less options. And films are way more expensive to make than a song. I mean, Peter, you make songs and I've made songs in, in films and films are way, way more expensive. And yet Netflix costs $7.99 a month. Okay, so you're thinking, okay, the music parallel, since music is much cheaper to make and music is much easier to distribute, this, the music price should be less than the film price, but and yet it's actually $3 more. So people do not like the music industry prices. Number, another thing that's huge on Netflix is that their, their consumer research software is absolutely brilliant. Netflix does a fantastic job of helping me, Scott Kirby, when I go in there to try to find a film. I love documentaries on, on politicians and the growth of our nation and on music bands like uh, Big Star. Uh, there, there's a great documentary. I saw that. That was yeah, great. It's great. Yeah, and we can talk about Big Star later too. Um, but their, their research software, their A-B comparison software is outstanding. And it, yeah, Pandora tries to do it. And yes, Spotify tries to do it. But the Netflix version of that parallel of that software is just much better. So the reason why Netflix is successful is because their research software, their customer support software to help you find good, good uh, movies is fantastic. And their pricing structure is fantastic. So the music industry's parallel is not there because they don't have that quality. Why? Because of the payola law. There's no payola law parallel in the movie industry. Netflix are allowed to have what's called laissez-faire capitalism. They're just allowed to do their thing, do the best job they can, and they can profit depending on how well they do their job. There's no payola law that's saying, no, 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 you can't do your job well because we're going to restrict how you do business. But that black cloud, that black flag is hanging over the music industry and making it impossible for do what Netflix does. So uh, what is your vision? What can the industry, the music industry do perhaps borrowing ideas from Netflix, what can they do specifically to, to improve the music industry situation? Okay. Um, I mentioned earlier the band from, from Memphis, Tennessee, Big Star. And let me talk a little bit about Big Star. Big Star, what the, what the Paola Law was supposed to do, Peter, and I told you this early, was level the playing field mm -hmm. between labels and bands that had a ton of money to labels and bands that didn't have money, thinking that, okay, if we made it impossible for rich labels to pay radio, then the playing field would be level and that it would give cash poor small labels a chance. Well, it didn't. And I'm going to use Big Star as an example. Big Star were a band that were signed to Ardent Records. They were picked up by Stax and then later Columbia. And each phase of this, um, the, the distribution chain, they were signed by Ardent, which was a little tiny label in Memphis, and Stax, which is the, is the black yeah. label oh, yeah. that was well known picked them up and said, we want you to be our rock label. So this was good, but Stax had accounting problems and some management problems, and they chained their doors. So Columbia, with Clive Davis, picked up the band. Anyway, long story short, is that everybody loved Big Star's music. 
So let's take away the payola law. Everybody loves them. Radio loved them. Rolling Stone magazine said that, that this was some of the best music they'd ever heard. And the people, when they heard Big Star, loved Big Star. Had there been no payola law, Big Star would have gone directly bypassed the labels what they were having problems with and gone to radio and saying, hey, we are a band that a lot of people like, which is true. And later, R.E.M. and Robin Hitchcock and the replacements and all these famous bands said that Big Star were one of the major inspirations of their career. So anyway, everybody loved the band. So they could have gone directly to radio and radio would have said, hey, if we do this, if we play your song 15 times a day of Clear Channel, MS Broadcasting, uh, Chancellor, some big radio groups would have said, if we do all this stuff, give you promotions, uh, have band concerts, talk about your band on the air. If, because now they're in the music industry. These radio stations are in the music industry and you make a million dollars, would you give us a hundred or 150,000 and you guys make 750,000 or 800? You know, Big Star would have gone, that works for us. It would have worked for radio and a bunch of people that are music lovers at radio and that go into record stores would have bought their product. It would have worked for everybody. The problem was it, it was impossible with the payola law because the payola law took radio that would have been in the radio, would have been in the music industry and took them out of the music industry. So they couldn't help a little band like Big Star. And that's why the whole payola law is ass backwards from what it's supposed to do. It did not help little bands. It did not help little labels. Uh, level the playing field between labels with giant amounts of cash. It did the opposite. It gave huge amounts of power to the big three major labels. Hence, what I said earlier is that 90% of the music on the airwaves today comes from these three major labels that have all the money. Mm -hmm. Now, your documentary, what, what's your plan for your documentary? It's, it's really an am amazing accomplishment, I think. It's, it's really well done. And well, I, th I think it's going to be a very important documentary for, for the industry, I think. But tell me about your, your hopes and plans for that. My hopes and plans, uh, the, the documentary is really a means to an end. The end goal really is to get people to know that don't know about the payola law. And I'd say, rough guess, out of 100 people, probably 95 out of 100 people don't know what the payola law is. And maybe two or three of them have heard it, of the remaining five, have heard about the payola law, but they don't know what it is. So we're trying to get people to understand that the payola law, which broke up the business relationship between music makers and music distributors, might be at the core of the problems that we have today. And to get senators and congressmen to revisit the law, Peter, mm. and say, is this law helping level the playing field? Clearly, it didn't segregate music on racial terms, which was the original goal set up by Emanuel Seller, who wanted to keep white artists on white radio and black artists on black radio, right? So he saw Elvis as, as mingling these two racial things, having black and white together, and he didn't want that. So it didn't, it didn't accomplish, accomplish anything in that, that area. It did not level the playing field so that cash-poor labels had a chance with cash-rich labels. Okay, that's number one. That, that we want the documentary to do. Number two is to talk about price fixing and collusion. Three or four days ago, Apple came out and said they're going to augment their iTunes store that sells MP3s with streaming. And of course, the price is going to be $9.99 a month, just like Spotify and just like Google Play. They're all $9.99 a month. And every song you buy as a digital download is $0.99 cents or $1.29. The prices are fixed. That's illegal. You can't do that in a free market economy. Mm. So the reason that the record industry gets away with it is because they have a powerful lobbyist group called the RIAA, the Record Industry Association of America, and their lobbyist group basically bribed, in my opinion, senators and congressmen. They paid them $90 million 
over the last 10 years, why would they pay them $90 million? They're losing money. They want a return on their investment. They want to be allowed to fix prices, but it's not legal. So what we want to do is educate people with this documentary. And I'll tell your listeners how they can hear, see the documentary and hear the content um, in, a, in a minute or two. But what we want people just to know about the Pale Law, that it did not level the playing field, and to know about collusion and price fixing, which, which is not only illegal, but kills the music industry. Because... If you're Spotify or Google or Apple's iTunes, you want to charge as low as you can to increase the number of people that are buying your service. And the reason why so few people are buying into the music industry economic model is people don't like the price structure and they have every right not to. As I said earlier, if Netflix can charge $7.99 a month for films, which are way, way, way more expensive than music to make, then the music equivalent should be less expensive, not more expensive. So instead of nine ninety nine, what what it would be? It should be five bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Now here's what would happen if it was five bucks a month. I would say a large percentage of the the like sixty million people that are Spotify users. There's only fifteen million that pay, and I think forty million to get it for free. A huge percentage of those forty million would say, "Hey, I'll buy into that. I like that price." Now, if you've got all those eyes, I always say eyes are the prize. If you're an internet company, what do you have? You have a social network, right? but that people will pay for. You can have people being able to talk online. They can use the $5 a month service. Everybody will be happy. And you become just like, um, you become more like Facebook and Twitter now. You're a social network based on music. Social networks, Peter, like Twitter and Facebook are worth huge, huge amounts of money. And now you've got the music equivalent that people are flocking to that they're actually paying for. So if Facebook is worth giants amounts of money now, imagine how much it would be worth if people would spend five bucks a month to use Facebook. They won't, but they would spend five bucks a month to use a social network media equivalent. So if, if the music industry could get people to buy into this in a mass level, the site that they went to would be worth colossal amounts of money. Mm-hmm. The current state of radio, when I turn on the radio, uh, you know, there's the Miley Cyruses and there's the other acts like that. Although, actually, I kind of like uh, Wrecking Balls. I, I actually think it's a pretty good song. But I, I heard uh, you like the video a lot with Miley Cyrus do, wearing that very scanty G-string thing. Yes, I actually do like that. What do you think of radio today? I think it's unlistenable. I mean, in three words, it's unlistenable. That's two words. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, my Our mutual friend, Ben Brooks, though, has played me songs that I like. I wanted to venture to say there are a lot of songs that I would like. But what's happening with the internet, Peter, it's, it's mostly customizing the chance for everybody to pretty much make up their own radio stations. I mean, that's what, that's what Spotify does. You can click songs and add them to the playlist. So your Spotify playlist would be Peter's radio station. Peter Radio. Mine would be Scott Radio. If Ben made his up, it would be Ben Radio. I think the problem with radio is they're trying to make a one-size-fits-all, and people aren't one-size-fits-all creatures. People like music, especially people that are passionate about music. They want to hear what they want to hear, and radio is one-size-fits-all. I think So they take artists that have really big names, and they play them to death, and a lot of people are getting really sick of it. So they want to listen to Pandora and Spotify and they'll listen to Live 365. There's a whole bunch of really neat shows on the internet that I listen to where there's much more diversity of playlists. And I think people like that. And I think that's why radio is losing audience by gangbusters is because, again, people don't like one size fits all product. Mm -hmm. 
They want to hear what they want to hear. Um, one thing I miss about the 60s radio that, that you know, we grew up with as, as young teenagers is it was more integrated in the late 60s in that you might hear a Beatles song and then you'd hear a Four Top song. No, the whole problem with, with music today is it's just not as good as it was 34. I'm sorry, people. It's just not as good. I mean, if you listen to Motown, the Four Tops, the Supremes, and then listen to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the quality of songwriting and the quality of innovation, it was amazing. There was a huge diversity in music between 1940 and 1950. Between 1950 and 1960, each decade, you heard the music and it was radically different. I hear music today in 2015 and it sounds just like the music that was in 2000. And if you listen to music in 1990, it sounds very similar to the music that was in 2000. So what's happening now, Peter, that's really discouraging to me is each decade is going by and the music basically stays the same. There's no real difference between music that came out in 2010, the music came out in 1990. If you heard a band that, that was came out with an album like Wilco, I like Wilco, by the way, so they're not a good example, but a rock band like Nickelback, I don't, I don't even know these bands, I just heard... But if you heard their music in 1990 or whenever they came out, and then you heard a rock band that came out in 2015, you would really have a hard time knowing which band came from which era. So, but that's a 25-year gap, right? Mm -hmm. The music between 1940 and 1965, that 25-year gap was radically different, black and white. So I just think the diversity in music in, in decade by decade is not changing. It's not evolving. It's stagnating. It's staying the same. So that's one of the reasons radio's not good is because it's contemporary music and the contemporary music that's out today just isn't as good as it was 40 or 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'd like to do something a little fun for a minute, just a little aside. Could you... If it involves taking off my pants, Peter, <laughs> I, I'm declining this invitation. <laughs> Darn, that's what I was going to say. I know, I bet it was. Um, I, I want to ask you what your top five favorite albums are. Okay, this is just music that inspired me and when I listen to them, I think back on very happy times. Five records that I can think that had a huge impact on me. Two were by Simon and Garfunkel, Sounds of Silence and Parsley Sage Rosemary and Time. Okay. The other I'd say was probably uh, Pink Floyd's Umagumma. I have incredibly good memories of Pink Floyd's Umagumma. Now the other two would probably be a little bit bizarre. One of them would be Brian Eno and Harold Budd's record, The Pearl, mm -hmm. which is just incredibly interesting album. And the other one would be a solo record by Harold Budd called Serpent in Quicksilver. I have logged in and to this day hours and hours of time listening to those five albums and just being amazingly impacted by them. Now, I also love the Beatles, like Revolver, I love, Sgt. Pepper, Beatles 6, Fantastic. There's just tons of great music out there. But the first five I mentioned, I'd say I listen to the most and I have the most wonderful memories of listening to those LPs and having them impact my life in, in a really positive, good way. So music for you is a really important thing. I mean, it's more than just talking about business ideas. It, it's a deeper thing for you. My biggest passion in life is music. And um, the reason why I dropped out of the music industry 20 or 25 years ago, because I started to see things becoming so messed up, so dysfunctional. And fortunately, I was economically okay enough to, to not have to uh, promote records or whatever, or work in a record store or whatever I would have to do. I could actually take time to back up 
and look and go, what the heck is wrong with the music industry? I mean, we have this thing called the internet now and it, it enables people to be able to send music from San Diego to Singapore with a click of a mouse button. It makes all the jobs that the record label has that were so difficult to do before. Like, okay, they had to manufacture CDs, cassettes, eight traps, vinyl, all this stuff and send it out in trucks and trains, inventory it in record stores, try to keep track of it. And then all the music they didn't want, they'd had to bring it back. Well, the internet eliminates all these problems. Mm-hmm. So I thought the internet should be the best harbinger for happy, positive times in the record industry. Why isn't the music industry booming? Why is it imploding? So Peter, I realized that yes, music is my passion. And my goal in life is to try to help the music industry make sense. And again, getting back, I'm a broken record on this. I realized it was the lack of synergy between the people that make music and the people that distribute it. And this was caused, I did some research, I looked and I said, it's this law called the Paola law. That's the, that's the root of this problem. And price fixing. Price fixing is illegal. On the film Music Matters, Peter, we have two economics professor and they say, oh, well, if Steve Jobs and the three major labels, or four, it might have been four at the time, did this. If Steve Jobs came out and said, we've got all the labels to agree, which he did, to spend 99 cents per song, it's like, Steve, I love you. You're a genius. You're an inspiration for technology and Apple's great. May you rest in heaven forever. But Steve, what you did there was illegal. And that was illegal. That was the black turd in the punch bowl for Steve Jobs' life. Setting prices for music to be one price, 99 cents, is illegal as hell. Excuse my French. You can't do that. It violates the free market economy laws and the Antitrust Act, specifically the Sherman Antitrust Act. You cannot fix prices. So we've got to make it so the price dropped dramatically for the music industry. The price for the consumer should also drop dramatically for the, for the consumer to buy music, but it didn't. It actually went up because the record labels are allowed to fix prices. They're able to practice collusion. So again, for the eighth time, I love music. I love writing songs. I love singing them. I love playing music with my friends. I enjoy listening to music dearly. It's my favorite pastime. But unless we fix the problems of the music industry, Year after year after year is going to go on and the music industry is con- going to continue to decline in stature. Sales are continues to stagnate. And even if they kind of level off and start to rebound a little bit, it will only be a fraction of what it could if we let laissez-faire capitalism work between the people that make music and the people that distribute it. And to do that, you've got to get rid of the payola law. You've got to get rid of it. You lived in Branson, Missouri for a while and you... As I recall, you had a nonprofit that you worked with, American Kids. Yes, American I just Kids. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about oh, that. Oh, uh, yes. My, I love children, too. Um, my passions in life are helping kids out and music. And I met through working through an RCA band called PC Quest. I think this was going on 25 years ago now. I met a wonderful, wonderful man named Dr. Dale Smith and his incredible wife, Carolyn Snow. And they had American kids. And I met them through Tim James, who um, I worked with through, through PC Quest. Anyway, they would use music to help children gain confidence, to go on stage and sing and perform and work with families. So it was kids working with music, gaining confidence. And, you know, very few people make a career out of music. But even if they didn't, it gave them a, a feeling of, of goodwill about who they were and about their abilities 
and instilled a certain amount of power in them to go out and put their foot forward and give their best. So American Kids was one of the best experiences of my life. And unfortunately, Carolyn Snow passed away, uh, I want to say, seven or eight years ago. And it was a very black day in my life because American Kids really kind of descended into a very difficult time then. But American Kids is still working today and uh, not at the level it was, but it's all about kids and families getting together and using music as a common denominator to help them work together and enjoy each other and perform in front of people. And it was really great for that. But we actually had Peter, uh, American Kid, the most famous American Kid was Blake Shelton. I don't know really? if you, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, Blake Shelton was an Oklahoma kid, which was a, a division of American Kids. It started out Oklahoma Kids, and Blake was in uh, Oklahoma Kids, which then evolved into American Kids. And one of the things that hurt American Kids that I've always told Dr. Dale is about, we should have tried to form business relationships with these people like Blake Shelton, not to make money, but for Blake to be able to go out and said, um, I started out with American Kids. It was a great environment for me to learn my craft and learn to be a singer and gain confidence. And I'm sure he, Blake Shelton benefited greatly from, from the uh, Oklahoma Kids, American Kids experience. Uh, the goal is, is to get more people to see it. But it's not really to get more people to see the documentary. It's to understand that payola was a very dubious law that needs to be looked at carefully as far as what its intent is and what it actually accomplishes and to get people to practice collusion. But the film is great. We're hoping to do film festivals, the New England, uh, Massachusetts Independent Film Festival. We're planning on doing Sundance. We're planning on doing the South by Southwest Convention Film Festival. So we want a bunch of people to see the film and learn about these two topics, which are very germane to why the music industry is in the absolute fix it's in right now. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that how nice it is to come up and see you, Peter, and how much I love your your uh, place here, and how for the rest of the weekend I hope um, we can like you might be able to let me hear some of your songs and maybe work on some lyrics and maybe I can record some scratch vocals for one or two of the things you played in last night. Both were I thought really interesting stuff. You you're a really talented guy, Peter. Thanks. And and maybe I can before I go back to Massachusetts I can come back two or three times or at least a couple times. Oh, that'd be great. We'd love to have you here. <laughs> me, me and my we meaning me and my little dog yeah terrence we love terrence but it, that would be a lot of fun for me to do so uh yeah so while i'm here it's just i'd like to say that how much i enjoy your digs up in the desert your new house is just fantastic thank you uh caroline uh lieber for for and caroline miller lieber for for all her expertise and adding the feminine touch which really adds a lot and yes. it's just it's really been an enjoyable visit peter thanks for having me well, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you. And I and I don't envy your task as far as trying to edit this down to a reason. It's going to be a lot <laughs> yeah, of work. Yeah, no, it's been interesting having you, and you've said a lot of interesting things that our listeners are going to really enjoy. Yeah, thank you, Peter, and I'll talk to you later. Great, thanks. You have been listening to the Peter Day Music Podcast. If you would like to comment on any of the songs or any of the thoughts or wacky ideas of Peter Day, please email the comments to Peter at dreamgoeson at yahoo.com. Meanwhile, keep on keeping on.